Hey guys, on this episode of Refactoring My Christianity, I'll be sitting down talking with Gary Machuda. Gary Machuda is an author who's written plenty of books, uh, a few being The Case for the Deuterocanonical Books, or Case for Deuterocanon, Evidence and Arguments, Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger, and Hostile Witness, How the Historic Enemies of the Church Proved Christianity, along with plenty of other books. I'll be mainly talking with Gary about the Deuterocanonical Books, and who will be going and diving into all that information. Gary was a wealth of information. I loved talking with him and also talking with him about his experience with the Eucharist and his personal faith and how he's grown in faith as well. So I think you all will enjoy this conversation. So let's just get right into it. Here we go. I'm here with uh, Gary Machuto. I appreciate you, Gary, for coming on this podcast. I came across your Apocrypha Apocalypse, and I really enjoy that channel and how you break down the canon of Scripture. So um, before we get all into that, just maybe give a little briefer people that are watching who you are and uh, a little more about yourself. Yeah, okay. Um, well, I, I'm a cradle Catholic who kind of had an inversion experience when uh, I was just graduating from college, and I ran across Carl Keating's book, Catholicism Fundamentalism, and felt the call to do apologetics on a professional level. So I ran a nonprofit ministry for a number of years. I've written, I don't know how many books in the field of apologetics. I actually have to look, because now I'm getting older, I don't even remember the books that I wrote. <laughs> like Hostile Witnesses, Revolt Against Reality, um, of course, why Catholic Bibles are bigger, case for the Deuterocanon, canon, wolf proof your kids, make you sensible, yada, yada, yada. Um, I uh, was a one-time radio host for Hands-On Apologetics, and um, and I have the YouTube channel that you mentioned, Apocrypha Apocalypse, that I do with uh, William Albrecht and David Savaris, where we dive into all things Deuterocanonical. Yeah, and that, that just seems, well, one, I wanted to say that's a, an amazing brag where you have so many books that you can't remember them. <laughs> that, that's something that uh, is just amazing. Um, but what got you interested in, in the canon itself? It's I've listened to interviews before, and I think it sounds like not there wasn't that much uh, on the Catholic side of talking about the canon. No, there wasn't. Um... Yeah, well, I, when I ran my nonprofit ministry, every time we'd do an event, there'd always be one or two questions from the audience about why Catholic Bibles aren't have seven books that Protestant Jewish Bibles don't. And it, it was just a reoccurring question. I thought, you know what, I, I should probably write a book. There's probably tons of Catholic books out there on it. So I, I began writing my book, and, and I didn't realize this, but there wasn't a book written on that topic since like 1898 or thereabouts. Uh, And even then, that book was only like half on the canon, at least from a Catholic perspective, I should say. All the other stuff was Protestant, Jewish, secular works. And yeah, you would find Catholics who would write an article here and there or a chapter in a book, but never like a full-length treatment. So, um, So basically, that's when I came out with why Catholic Bibles are bigger. And it's it relies almost entirely on Protestant, Jewish secular stuff because there really wasn't Catholic things and, and it's a huge subject and it's really cool. And then I thought, okay, well, I got that done. You know, I can move on to the next thing, and I try to. But you know, it's funny, Adam, because it's one of those subjects that like you just can't let go. It follows you, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kept finding even more stuff, and uh, there was a lot of stuff that was left on the cutting room floor because I. I wanted to try to make sure everything in the book was solid. 
and I find out, yeah, it is solid. In fact, some of the points were even better than I thought. So then I, I um, was putting all this stuff aside, and um, I also debated James White on on the top of the canon. And a fellow emailed me, and he, he, he enjoyed the debate. He was Protestant, but he said, you know, you never actually said, gave us reasons why we should accept these books. Because I don't care about Martin Luther or Calvin or anything. You can show it's scripture, you know, I'll accept it as scripture. And I thought, well, that would be an interesting challenge because, you know, I, the debate with the thesis, I um, the, I didn't have to defend the inspiration of the books. I just had to show Protestantism was wrong. So I, that's when I wrote the case for the Deuterocanon and, and made it into a positive case. Like, these are the reasons why we believe these books are inspired. And like I said, it just keeps following and following. I came up with a second edition of why Catholic Bibles are bigger. And uh, and then eventually, you know, I realized most people don't read. So I thought, <laughs> why not go on the Internet and basically put all this stuff out in video form, which generates the, the channel. So that's I'm glad you enjoyed the channel. I'm sure it's great if you can't sleep to help your insomnia. You can <laughs> post on one of my long, long videos. No, I really appreciate the breakdown. I, I recommend people that are listening or watching right now is you have a nice little quick little playlist of all the different myths about the, the Deuterocanon. And I, I really appreciate that breakdown because it's very simple and easy to understand. Um, just to back up a little bit, what, what got you into just apologetics in, in general? That just seems like such a when people say apologetics, it seems so daunting to me anyway, because you have to have a, a, a grasp of so many different concepts. It just seems like what got you interested in that? Yeah, well, I was uh, challenged by a coworker, my first full-time job out of college. She was a fu Protestant fundamentalist and uh, became friends with her. And, you know, she thought the Catholic Church was the whore of Babylon, that mm. would be the one world church government that would persecute true Christians. I mean, she was really out there on the anti-Catholic spectrum. So, um, you know, at that time, I, I didn't, you know, I, even though I went to Catholic grade school, high school, I didn't really know the faith very well. And uh, so anyway, uh, it was really through her challenges that she uh, got me to think about it. Also, I had this amazing uh, experience of Christ's real presence in the Eucharist that like spun my whole world around. And uh, so I wanted to learn everything I could about the faith after that. And I, that's when I ran across Carl Keating's book. And when I read it, it's like, wow, there's actually reasons why we Catholics believe <laughs> what we do, you know? There's historical, logical, um, biblical reasons. And uh, I, I just got bit by the bug. I, I, I thought it's the coolest thing. It's like, why don't other people know about apologetics? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, so that that was really the impetus. Yeah, it seems like for me, it started uh, clicking more when I started diving more deep because you see how deep and rich the church history yeah. and all the, the church fathers and how much smarter they are, at least than me, that's for sure. Um, and just have the, the, the ability to be humble and listen to them. Because that's, that's one of the things that I've noticed once I've like dove more into this is that it seems like the humility that it takes to maybe listen to people like that are church fathers. Cause I, I've come across this with a lot with Protestants, at least in the Twitter space. So take that with a grain of salt, um, who, who are very, 
combative, so to speak, but where it seems like they they don't have the humility to the, to look at church fathers and say, hey, maybe if they all agreed on a certain topic, maybe we should have the humility that maybe they know something that we don't. Yeah. Yeah, in their minds, it's kind of like the early church fathers is like the pastors down the street. They're just, that's their opinion, and I have my opinion, and, and I'm right, you know. But when you look at the early church fathers as witnesses to the early faith, um, that, that tends to change things around. And uh, unfortunately, um, a lot of Protestants aren't even aware of the early church fathers, much less why they're important, right? But uh, yeah, yeah, really good point. Um, and of course, that's an important issue with the canon and really with everything, you know, whether this is what Jesus and the apostles handed on to us. Mm-hmm. Do you want to go into the the experience because you mentioned that you had this Eucharistic experience, and I was kind of curious what exactly that the, what happened. <laughs> oh, sure. You want the long version or the short version? Whatever you feel like going into. Yeah, it's it's a little involved, but it, it's you know it's interesting. Um, so my friend Susan, the fundamentalist, um, she was trying to invite me to go to her Baptist church, and uh, and I went. And, you know, I I never really attended a non-Catholic church before, and it was very impressive. Everything was so Bible-centered, you know, and and the the preacher preached from the Bible. Everybody had Bibles, Bible, 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 right? So in turn, I asked Susan, would you like to come to a Catholic Mass? And she never went to the Catholic Mass because, you know, according to her mindset, that was like, you know, going into some sort of satanic, you know, <laughs> but she went, which is amazing mm-hmm. grace of God. Uh, by the way, Susan became Catholic eventually. Um, but uh, so she went and afterwards I asked her, you know, what you think of it? And she's, she's kind of said, you know, it was very nice. Thank you. Blah, blah, blah. And then she asked me a question. She says, I do have a question. How do Catholics hear the word of God and apply it in their lives? And I thought, you know, it kind of shocked me at first because I'm like, gee, somebody's asked me a question about my faith. I got to think really quick here. <laughs> it's like, well, we hear the, the readings on Sunday and we try to apply it in our lives. And, you know, the priest gives a homily and and that's how we do it. And she, I remember her reaction. She said, huh, which most people would be like, oh, okay. But I knew Susan when she said, huh, it was like, I don't buy it, Right. So I decided, uh, Adam, you know, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to take myself off autopilot at church next Sunday. I'm going to listen to the readings, and I'm going to give her an example, right? So she, I went, and I, I think it was, uh, the, the reading was something like, you know, lend expecting nothing in return, you know, St. Paul. And so I told her, I asked her, uh, what was the reading at your church last Sunday? And funny, she couldn't remember. All right, so she's on pilot too. <laughs> and I said, well, mine was, you know, lend expecting nothing return. And she goes, oh, that's interesting. So I thought, okay, well, now I got to show her how I apply it in my life. So it just turned out during the week, a mutual friend of ours needed money. I had money. And I remember giving the money. And it's like, you don't have to pay me back. Here's here's some cash for you. And I remember looking at Susan like, behold, the Catholic, here's the word God applies it in life. You know, I was very proud. But, you know, she wasn't impressed. So I did the same next Sunday and next Sunday, and I kept doing it. And, um, 
um, eventually what happened was like God's grace really began to work in our lives where uh, there would be instances where the reading of that Sunday would, something would come up in either one of our lives that would fit perfectly with that particular reading. And it got to the point where Susan, the anti-Catholic Protestant, started asking me like what the readings were because it was almost like reading the horoscope of what's going to happen, you know, coming up. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so uh, there's also another element, too, that was going on at the same time. That's the longer version. You know, uh, we started studying together uh, spiritual warfare because that was like one of the few things we held in common. We had a common enemy. And I was noticing when I was going to these anti-Catholic bookstores how in spiritual warfare, they, they'd make these left-handed compliments. Like they had admit that like Satanists mimic the mass. But then they would say something like, well, that's because Catholicism has like one foot in the grave with Satanism or something like that, you know. So anyway, um, but they kept, you know, things with the Eucharist kept popping up, you know. Uh, with, you know, Satanists, uh, they're, with the highest thing they can do is desecrate a consecrated Eucharist. Or, or I've also read that if you had a bona fide witch, if you have a hundred unconsecrated hosts, like the witch can tell which one of those hundred was consecrated. Um, but anyway, so one day I was sitting in my cubicle at this large insurance company that I was working at with Susan. And I was just trying to think, you know, it's interesting that you know, Satanism, everything is kind of like ordered to or against the Eucharist, right? It's kind of like mm -hmm. a focal point from. And I thought, you know, back in, uh, as a Catholic, everything we do is Eucharistic focused. Like everything uh, is, is either directly with the Eucharist or it's in the context of the Eucharist. And then I just got hit by, uh, you know, I was no longer there at the cubicle. And um, it, it's hard to describe. But uh, it was like God, God kind of like reached in my heart and grabbed me and was lifting me up. And I saw how everything in the world is ultimately ordered to the Eucharist. And that's because the Eucharist is Jesus. And uh, it was such a tremendous experience that I, I had to say stop because I felt like I was being blown apart by this. And I came, you know, I was there in the cubicle. My hands are shaking. My knees are shaking. My mind's going a million miles an hour. Like, what in the world was that, right? But then, like, two thoughts came to my mind. And uh, the first thought was, um, Jesus is really, truly present in the Eucharist in a way that was so, so substantially true that it's almost like it's more real that he's present there than, than anything else. You know, and I always thought more like a, not symbolic, like I always believed in the real presence, but I just didn't see the concreteness of that. Mm -hmm. And then the other thought was, what was the reading last Sunday? And it was Doubting Thomas. And uh, I thought, you know, I've been a Doubting Thomas. I didn't realize it, but it, it took this experience to kind of wake me up and uh, and see how things truly are. And uh, that's when we went to the Catholic bookstore because I wanted to find out everything about the faith. That's where I ran about Carol Keating's book, fell in love with apologetics, and yeah, and that's it. The rest is history. Well, that, that's right. That's a, that's an amazing story, and 
kind of wish more cradle Catholics had that experience of, because you, you see now less and less Catholics have the, the belief that the real presence is there in the Eucharist. And I think you actually touched on a good point of just being present at mass and how that makes an insanely just a different experience of when you're going on autopilot, which I definitely was as a cradle Catholic, but now coming back, um, it's just drastically different when you're actually focused on what's going on. And it has that spiritual element that I think a lot of people really are yearning for in general, because that's why you see the, the rise of occultism and there's something innate in our humanity that we want that spiritual aspect. And I think Catholic church really is the one true one that provides all of that in the context of the Eucharist and Jesus and, uh, that's an amazing story. Um, very yeah. beautiful. Yeah, I mean, there's just something, you can almost sense it, right? Walking into a church when the, the Eucharist is there. And, and what's interesting, Adam, is there's stories about like atheists who, uh, and there's numbers of stories where uh, they, it was a hot day in Europe, they would go into a Catholic church because they knew it was cooler in there. And they would have the sense that they're not alone. You know, a couple of stories, the atheist actually verbally says, I know you're not there. And then it struck <laughs> him like, who am I talking to? You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and that became like the seed for their conversion. Uh, so it's, there's something, I call it radiation treatment, you know? <laughs> and I, I really think when Susan came to mass, I think being in the presence of Christ changed her. And I think led her on the road to Catholicism as well. You know, it's, there's something palpable about the mm -hmm. presence of Christ there. I completely agree. Um, I guess we'll just uh, take a hard segue now into the, okay. the into the the canon. Um, that's what you're um, known for. So, well, you're known for a lot of things, but that's one of the main reasons I came across you. Is so for people that don't know what exactly is the, the canon and why should Catholics and people care about it in general of how it was developed. Yeah. Oh, well, canon's a fancy word. Just basically means the contents of scripture. Uh, so it's the full extent of inspired writing. So uh, all the writings that are inspired make up the corpus of the Bible, and we call that the canon. There's an Old Testament canon. There's a New Testament canon. It's kind of like the table of contents in a way of the Bible. And uh, like I mentioned before, we we sh well we share the New Testament canon with Protestants. So we have the exact same books in our Bibles as they do. But where we differ is on the Old Testament canon. Uh, Catholics and Orthodox have seven books, um, which is uh, Sirach, Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Baruch, First and Second Maccabees. There's also a couple of chapters in the book of Daniel and some sections in Esther. And that's called Deuterocanonical books because... Catholics and Orthodox believe these are inspired scripture, uh, but they make up a, a different um, subdivision within the inspired text. Okay, um, Protestants and Jews do not accept these books, so they have a smaller version of Daniel and Esther, and they're missing those seven books. Unless they're using a really old Protestant Bible, because the old Protestant Bibles used to include these uh, in an appendix called Apocrypha. And this is Adam's where things get a little tricky, because... Catholics call these books Judeo-Canon, 
Protestants don't believe they're inspired, so they call it apocrypha, which means hidden. Mm. And uh, for them, it's like extra material, but it's not biblical. It's not inspired. It's not canonical. And uh, and eventually those were removed from Protestant Bibles. And most Protestants aren't even aware of these books. Yeah, and I think that was one of like the the bells alarming in, in my brain is just in general, if you're the, the you're the individual or the sect that's removing any type of books, that immediately brings alarm bells of, hey, maybe that's that's not good. Um but that that was initially like my thought process on comparing the two. I was like, oh, why why are there less when it was originally established for a long period of time that this was the canon, but now maybe after the the Reformation period, we initially we ended up removing them, which they weren't removed initially, which is what you were talking about. Um, but what what is say because we what is, what is the strongest argument you think Protestants have against or towards removing the deuterocanonicals? Do you think they have a like a very strong argument for it, or is it all from your experience? It's it's very um, straw manny, I guess. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Their their strength is the simplicity, okay, of their claim. They claim that they follow the the canon of the Jews, the Hebrews, okay, and so all they do is they'll cherry pick from the early church fathers that try to reproduce the Jewish canon, which is smaller because the Jews didn't rabbinical Judaism didn't accept them, and they assume that rabbinical Judaism is the same as biblical Judaism, which is not. Um, so then they kind of, that's where their whole case is. It's, it's kind of gerrymanders the early church fathers and other things to try to, to make that case that these were, that the early Christians adopted a Jewish canon. Jewish canon was this. Mm-hmm. And so the simplicity of that's easy. You can say that in a couple seconds, like I did. The problem is the situation is actually much more complex and, uh, and once you get into the complexity, you find out, no, this is just this, uh, not a straw man, but it, it's a very, very thin and most likely wrong argument. Gotcha. So, how uh, for how was the canon kind of composed over time? How do, how do they end up settling on uh, the books that we have in the Catholic Bible? Okay, yeah. Um, well, let's talk about Judaism, right? Um, the one thing wrong with the, the Protestant approach is it assumes Judaism was a monolithic religious body in the first century, which it wasn't. I mean, even just reading the scriptures, you have the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Zealots, right? So there's many different versions of Judaism's different sects. And by mm-hmm. the way, they had different collections of books as well. Um, even the Pharisees were divided into two schools. One school accepted uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and Esther. The other school didn't. Right. And uh, so there's different Judaisms, different collections of books. And um, so I always point out, you know, which sect is right? Which one do Christians follow? And and the answer is Jesus. The Christians are right. Right. Because Jesus is God. He knows which books are inspired. And he would have handed on that data to the apostles. And the apostles would have had a duty to hand it on to the early church. So what we don't, we're not concerned about different sects of Judaism. We're concerned about what Jesus and the apostles handed on. And uh, later on, this is where things, you know, this is where the Protestant case falls apart. Uh, 
after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and we start getting into the Christian, second Christian century, Judaism, uh, all these different sects disappear. And really one sect emerges as the predominant one, which is the Pharisees. And that's what we call rabbinic Judaism. They become a religion of the book because they don't have a temple to offer sacrifice. And it's then that rabbinic Judaism settles on their official collection of books, which excluded the seven books. So Christianity actually has an older collection that's bigger, where Judaism is actually a newer collection that was made in the second Christian century. And that's why it's totally wrongheaded to say, we're just going to follow what the Jews accept, because you're following rabbinic Judaism. That's not the Judaism of Jesus. And uh, so anyway, uh, long story short, if you want to find out what the Christian canon is, you look, one way to do is look at the early church fathers, like we talked about. There are witnesses to which books read. And around the fourth century, you have St. Augustine, who actually explicitly says, if you want to find out which books are in the canon, this is what you do. You look at all the churches and which books are being read as scripture in all the different Christian churches throughout the world but especially those churches that were known to be established by the apostles or to receive an epistle from them. So in other words, there, he puts a priority on the apostolic churches. And he says, if you compare all of them, what you find is the consensus is the canon. And he gives the canon, which is identical to what Catholics accept today. And then oh, wow. the North African councils follow Augustine on that. So that's, that's the answer, really, is the universal church or the universal Christians that in the first few centuries, the churches used these books of scripture. What accounts for that unity? It has to have been from a common source, which would be Jesus and the apostles. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, you talking about rabbinic Judaism, where they're all focused around their book, it does kind of remind me a little bit of if you go to a, a Protestant church where it is all surrounding the Bible. Now they, they, um, yeah. worship Christ, but it's just really fascinating how you have that dichotomy or they're kind of juxtaposed together. It's kind of somewhat similar where it's all centered around the Bible, at least in Protestant churches, you have the pew where they're, they're reading the word and um, really no, wor uh, no, I guess, worship or sacrifice goes on with the Eucharist. So I guess that's sort of what their focus needs to be. One, um, thing I wanted to, I was curious about is what does the timeline look like from you have the Reformation Luther uh, and then he goes and removes those books or not him specifically but that in unity a, a lot of Protestants they end up just removing those uh, six books what does that actually look like because I was listening to one of your interviews and I found it fascinating is that they initially uh, Luther didn't initially um, want to remove them but he was in a debate and then all of a sudden, it kind of that sort of started swaying his view on those the Deuterocanon. Yeah, yeah. So this is something that even Breen didn't touch on uh, was what happens to these books within Protestantism, because you know, and to me, it's it's just a question of history, right? It's either Protestants removed these books or Catholic Church added them, and there's a paper trail we can we can learn that. And most definitely Protestants uh, are responsible for uh, removing these books. But it, it's a low, really slow process, though, which is interesting. Mm. So, yeah, starting with Martin Luther, um, I, 
I did a series of videos where Luther's using the Deuterocanon as proofs in debates uh, from, I think, 1560, no, was it? I forgot what the earliest one is. Uh, during his Protestant period, after the 95 Thesis, uh, all the way up until 1519, he's using these as proofs. He's citing, even calls them canonical in one at one part. Mm, interesting. Um, because he says, I'm only going to use the canonical scriptures, and then he cites Tobit in that debate. Um, and then at 1519, he swears off with Johann Eck, who is a Catholic theologian. And Eck lives up to his name. In German, Eck means corner. And he corners Luther with on the topic of purgatory. And, and Luther says that he didn't believe purgatory could be substantiated in the scriptures. That could be admitted into debate to serve as proof. And he says Second Maccabees can't be admitted because it's not canonical, which is completely different from what he's done all the way prior to 1519, where he's using the deuterocanonical books in debate. Mm-hmm. And he appeals to Jerome. We didn't talk about Jerome, but Jerome uh, was the first Catholic theologian in the church to call the deuterocanon apocrypha, like not inspired, not canonical. And this is in the fourth century as a contemporary of Augustine. And, uh, and interesting enough, he did so because of his misunderstanding of uh, biblical manuscripts. And the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls actually proved them wrong, by the way. But anyway, in the Middle Ages, uh, he was the man when it came to biblical scholarship. So he said, hey, Jerome says these aren't inspired. So uh, I'm going to follow Jerome on the point. And um, from that point on, he still uses the Deuterocanon, interesting enough, but it's kind of a downward spin where eventually he starts seeing his own inconsistency. Mm. And then maybe by 1523 or so, when he's putting out his German translation, that's where he finally says, these are apocrypha, you can't use them to confirm scripture. But he doesn't remove it from his Bible, Adam, which is weird, right? Mm-hmm. Why not just remove the books if no one ever believed these to be inspired canonicals text? No, he, he what he did was they were used to be intermixed in the Old Testament. He gathers them, he puts them in the appendix between the Old and the New Testament. And so his German translation becomes the exemplar for Protestant Bibles. So the earliest Protestant Bibles all had this appendix with these books in them. Mm-hmm. And eventually, um, uh, you have the Calvinist at the uh, Synod of Door who vote on it, and they decide, even though most of the Calvinists want them as they are, as a compromise, they move the appendix to the back of the Bible. And, uh, and then eventually, in the 1820s, if you can believe it, that's when Protestants actually in bulk began to remove these books from their, their Bibles. 1820s. Wow. Yeah. I, I don't know if this is accurate, but I, <laughs> this is probably here in secondhand sources, but was the reason they ended up moving it is because just it was cheaper to print the, the Bibles? Is, is that historically accurate? Well, not, I've heard that passed down. Right. Not the Council of Dort. Dort was uh, some, some Calvinist. Uh, didn't like these books. They thought it was too, there were too Roman Catholic, you know, some mm. of the teachings. And so they, they really wanted to get it out. But the problem is, see, the early Protestants were former Catholics and they knew these books were part of the Bible. 
So you, you couldn't outright remove them. If Luther did that, that would have been mm. way too big of a break, too quick. So they kind of had to slowly push them out. Um, in the 1820s, it was Bible societies that did it. Mm. Uh, the British Reformed Bible so Society was the, like the main one. And what Bible societies did were they were giving their Protestant philanthropical organizations that would give money to other like groups to print Bibles and distribute them far and wide. And they didn't want to be sectarian. So they had in their bylaws that they would only fund the printing of scripture, nothing that was not scriptural. So no footnotes, no commentaries. It was just the Bible text. Mm. But then uh, in, this, uh, in Scotland, uh, the Reformed uh, there said, hey, hold on a second. You're, you're spending money to make Bibles with the Apocrypha, so-called, and the Apocrypha is not scripture, so you're violating your own bylaws by doing that. And they, they threatened the Edinburgh Bible Society and, and Glasgow threatened to leave, you know, unless they changed their policies and there was a big hubbub. And then finally, the British and Foreign Bible Society caves in, cuts all funding to societies with these books uh, that will print these books in their Bible. And uh, that's kind of the turning point because, um, interesting enough, I, I don't know if you saw this video, but like Protestants kind of whitewash this. They'll recount it, but they, they, they basically say, and Protestants were happy because they liked the smaller Bibles anyway, right? Mm. But actually there was a huge revolt in Europe because Protestants wanted their Bibles like it was always printed, you know, texts mm -hmm. from the Reformers. And so a lot of Protestant organizations said, we don't want British money. We'll do it on our own with the Deuterocanon or the Apocrypha in it. But like you mentioned, Adam, that's where economics comes in, because it was much more economical to print smaller Bibles than larger Bibles. And so printers kind of, it was, you know, obviously they want a bigger profit margin. So uh, regardless of... Um, whether or not uh, they were supposed to include these books, printers start doing it less and less. And eventually mm -hmm. today, almost none, you know, there are some Bibles out there with it, but almost all Protestant Bibles don't have them. Interesting. So it's kind of like the whole timeline is just a, a what's the saying, a boiling a frog in a pot or something, yeah, or just right. a slow, slow process where it's eventually is removed without uh, huff, any like, huff or anything like that because i guess the idea is, is so you're mentioning that they grew up with these bibles is that if now if you get multiple generations down the line then you'll have less and less fervor for the original traditional bible that they're they were given yeah. which is really fascinating so what was luther's claim as to why those were apocrypha not inspired i i think it, i heard one of your interviews where i was talking about it, it, he he made the criteria that you need to see Christ in all mm -hmm. the, the 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 text. It, was that specifically it? Because that seems very. Uh, I feel like with now with you see so many denominations and you could read Christ into a bunch of different texts if you don't have a an authority, so to speak, that gives you and passes down the the teaching. Yeah, yeah, very good. Um, well, initially it appeals to Jerome, but the problem with appealing to Jerome is that uh, it didn't square with Martin Luther's New Testament. You know, originally Martin Luther 
did not hold James, um, Hebrews, Jude, Revelation as canonical scriptures. In fact, the, the first edition of his German Bible, if you look at the table of contents, those aren't numbered. Those are like unnumbered. Uh, so he had apocrypha for the New Testament and Old. <clears throat> so when he appealed to Jerome in the Old Testament canon and says, Jerome doesn't accept these books, they realized like, well, hold on a second. Jerome accepted the ones that you're rejecting in the new. <laughs> and uh, actually, Karlstadt, his, his uh, companion, saw that inconsistency. And I think that led Luther. See, Luther kind of backpedals into things. He, he doesn't always come up with positive reasons. It's more like as opposition grows, he kind of steps back into positions. So one of his stated positions is that what determines whether a book is canonical is whether he hears Christ preached in the book. And to the extent that you hear it preached, to that extent it's canonical. So the canon isn't like a set group of books, it's more of a spectrum of books. So there are some that are more canonical, some less, because there's some books that preach Christ, and those are like the chief books, like Romans and Galatians and, and John, where some books you don't hear Christ being preached, uh, like Esther or, um, you know, James, especially. And uh, so that's kind of his criteria. But see, Protestants, a couple of diehard Lutherans buy into that. Um, but Protestant theologians realized, even Lutheran theologians, that this is kind of begging the question in a way, because who determines who hears Christ, right? It's really, Luther heard his gospel preached only in certain books, but not in other books, right? So it's kind of like his theology determines the canon, and then the canon is supposed to reflect his theology. So it's all circular. Mm. And so Protestants, you know, that... It still is a problem today. Like, how do you determine which books belong in Scripture? Most Protestants will look to history, but then they have a problem, Adam, because like we said with history, the consensus really isn't there. They have to cher cherry-pick evidence. Yeah, and it seems like they, uh, maybe Luther had a, a point with his, what was it, 95 thesis? Mm -hmm. um, but it, it seems like there was a, a consistent issue of hubris so to speak so I, I see the quote of luther wanting everybody to be their own individual pope and that just seems very yeah. uh what's the the right term chaotic <laughs> it, right. It, if, if everyone is their own pope determining what each scripture verse i mean you see this a lot of times on social media where somebody will they'll talk about the same exact verse and it just seems like they're just running into a brick wall with each other because they don't quite understand where each person is coming from and you see that with the the thousands of different denominations now because they're reading different verses that it just seems like a lot of this argumentation comes down to like hubris and pride on luther's part and wanting to be right instead of being humble enough to except that maybe he may have had a point in this one area, but it, in all the, this other area doesn't, doesn't make him, you know, a Pope, so to speak. Yep, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it really, um, it sows the seeds for what will eventually undermine the scripture for a lot of non-Catholics, uh, because you become the determiner of what is and what is not God's word. And of course, people have different opinions. Like if you could do that with the old Testament canon, What's to prevent a skeptic from doing it with the New Testament canon? And actually, Luther kind of already 
did that, right? And uh, and so you have Protestants who no longer believe in the inspiration of Scripture or certain books, and you know it just undermines the authority because the authority rests ultimately in uh, your own intellect, right? Your own critical thinking. Where if it's something that Christ has determined and handed on, then it's not up to us to judge, you know, why this book and not that book. It's up to us to just receive what Christ handed on because we're his disciples. Yeah, I think I was having this thought um, before the interview because I like to do, to pray the rosary before these interviews I do to try to get my head nice and clear. Um, but it, it made me think of if Protestants don't have that authority structure to for canon determination, what is stopping them? It, it may sound ridiculous now, but what is stopping them from removing stuff from the New Testament or theoretically adding a uh, new canon to the to the scripture as whole they maybe they see a gnostic gospel and say oh that's actually inspired because i say so and then you have even more uh, supposed canon being added to where would they theoretically draw the line because like you're saying we know luther didn't like james and other books in the new testament that that's where you get onto these the shaky ground of how you determine what is canon and what's not and if it's determined by your own determination that, that that can lead to a lot of uh faultiness yeah yeah and yeah and when too i mean luther originally he thought james was contradictory to paul and romans and uh, that's when he was most critical about the epistle of james later on he he came out with the idea of how to harmonize the two so did that res, you know resuscitate james you know at what point in your life you know, you can change your mind on all sorts of things. And if you have, if you're the one that determines the canon, then you know what? Your Bible's going to be growing and shrinking as you move along. And, this, and who knows whether it's right or not. Mm -hmm. um, and, and like you said, you know, in higher criticism, there are people who actually think like the Gospel of Thomas has quasi-canonicity, right? And uh, and you'll get critical scholars that will say things like, uh, you know, that the non-Pauline epistles uh, that are supposedly from Paul, those aren't on the same rank. And, you know, you, you basically undermine the scriptures. Yeah. And, and if know. you're a, a Protestant that's attending these churches and you don't have like that set structure and you see in the world, um, for instance, people coming out and saying, oh, we discovered this new gospel of Mary or gospel of Thomas. What's stopping that one individual thinking, oh, maybe that's also canonical and maybe I should go down that. And that could lead to, you know, losing faith in Christ just because of the, the dichotomy between right. the two. And that's where it, this stuff gets really iffy. And you kind of, um, one of the things that it, it seems like it's the Lutheran approach, it sounds like, um, where contradicts early church fathers or contradicts say that the deuterocanonical or deuterocanonical or deuterocanon my, right. my brain's not working uh, contradicts what he is saying that he then kind of reinterprets it to kind of fit his viewpoint how you were saying it's search circular theology and circular reasoning and you kind of see that a lot with how some protestants interpret the new testament where they have to insert certain words that are in or take out certain words that aren't in it and 
are in the New Testament to kind of fit their uh, different theologies that they they believe. And it, it just seems like with a lack of authority structure, that results in a lot of this chaos. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, or th there's another side of the scenario, too, is that they might gleam onto arguments that are made by Protestants, you know, after the fact to justify their canon. And those arguments are terrible. And so if they start digging in and asking questions and actually researching these claims, then they'll find out, wow, this is really bad argumentation, right? And since Catholicism can't be right, and Protestantism is wrong on the canon, it's like maybe Christianity is just a human invention. And I think that that happened to a lot of Protestants, that they've lost their faith because of that type of, um, you know, uh, bad argumentation, you know, because there really isn't an answer from the Protestant side on why their Old Testament is like it is, uh, at least nothing that would square with Christian theology. And I, I do think, actually, though, that uh, the beauty of the Internet now, even though there's so much negativity on it, but one of the beauties is that it allows to enlighten people to Catholicism because one of the main issues is that the promulgation of the Catholic Church was this thing that they thought it was, but it's not actually uh, what other pastors are saying about Catholicism in, in general. and. Hopefully now with more channels out there and more Catholic apologetics, people that are just getting out there and putting themselves on YouTube like yourself, hopefully more people come to realize like, oh, maybe the, the, the Catholic Church is not as bad as they preach about. And it's not, you know, say the whore of Babylon, which I was watching a, a debate recently with um, William Albrecht, who you're familiar with, and right. he was interviewing um, – I forget his last name, uh, Dustin Nemos or something, talking about the horror Babylon with the Catholic okay. Church. And it just came off so, um, like, not based in historical fact. And it's all just exegesis and kind of taking pieces here and there and making it fit the narrative that they already viewed the Catholic Church. And that's, uh, I'm very hopeful that more of these debates will flush out the truth of uh, the Catholic Church. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, with my channel, too, I've, I've been really pleased with it because I've received letters from or emails. See, showing my age. <laughs> yeah, emails uh, from Protestants. I would, I would like to get a letter nowadays. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, it's like an event. <laughs> but I, I've received emails from Protestants that said, hey, you know, I've been watching your channel and I'm persuaded. You know, I believe these books really are uh, scripture. And in some and. You know, a few have mentioned that maybe that, that they're open to Catholicism. Some aren't. And I'm I'm good with that because, you know, I, I think the truth needs to be told about the Old Testament canon, especially for people, like you mentioned, the Sola Scriptoris, the, the people that follow the Bible alone. It's like if the Bible is the Supreme Court, you know, the norm that sets all norms, the standard that sets all standards, you got to make sure that you have all those books and only those books that are inspired and capable of doing that. And uh, quite frankly, and the, the modern Protestant Bible simply doesn't, doesn't square with that. They're purposely missing books. There's a lot of sleight of hand and uh, bad argumentation to try to smooth that over and say, you know, it's like, you know, the cop 
you know, at the traffic, huge accident, fire, police and everything. And they're like, nothing here. Don't, you know, keep moving. <laughs> it's same thing here. It's, uh, it's so important just to get the truth out. And like you said, I, I totally agree that, you know, this is an exciting time to live in with social media because now people in their comfort their own home, they can watch videos and come to their own conclusions, do their own research. Yeah, it's and just planting that little bit, that little seed, uh, may let Christ in and slowly work on them. Yeah. So uh, to kind of remove all that bias that you have, because um, that's one thing I, I point out on my channel a lot is that the, the people that attend these Protestant churches, they're all uh, lovely people from uh, what I've gone to. They love the Bible, they love Christ, and I, just planting that seed and hoping that they can sort of wade through the waters of uh, maybe this pastor is not speaking truth on Catholicism just because they have some bias on their own or they learn something from their pastor and they don't want to give up on that. And also there's probably nowadays with how far divided the Catholicism is with Protestantism, that there's probably some financial incentives that you don't want to give in um, to oh, yeah. Catholicism because then you lose a lot of your um, people that are attending your congregation. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. Huge. Uh, coming home network. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what they work with because converting to Catholicism for a pastor is not just a change of mind. It's, you know, your occupation, your, your finances, uh, your retirement, everything is tied into a particular denomination. And uh, for someone to become Catholic as a Protestant pastor, it could be devastating. So coming home in that work kind of helps people in that journey. Uh, so, yeah, what you say is true. There, There is, you know, there's reasons why people will argue the party lines because that's where their paycheck is. And, yeah, uh, yeah even if uh, it's not solid and it could destroy people's faith. Yeah, I just, but like you're saying, I recommend uh, people, if you're a Protestant, listen and go to a Catholic Mass. So you'll be kind of surprised if you're attentive to everything going on. Even if you don't quite understand, just follow probably the the, the people in the front, and you'll be pretty good. <laughs> yeah, there you <laughs> you'll, go. You'll, you'll be pretty good on what what to do. Um, just be, be open-minded, and I think like you, what happened with you and your, your friend, it, it it can slowly work on you. Christ can work on you in a, a slow way. So um, one question I wanted to ask, and maybe Protestants um, that, that don't have the, the Deuterocanon, what are they missing out on those books that, that are in there? For instance, uh, I think that they're, the, the book of Tobit, I love that story. Um, and I, I feel like more Protestants would gain a lot from that and probably the other books in the, in the Bible. I mean, you gain a lot from all the the books. Yeah. Oh, they're missing a lot because and get this, Adam. When they when Protestants read the New Testament, they're reading it against a doctrinal background of a Judaism that didn't exist for four hundred years before. There's this huge gap of time from the end of the Protestant canon to the end of the Catholic canon and the beginning of the New Testament. Catholic canon comes right up to the New Testament time. And so there's a lot going on in that period. Um, and so I think when Protestants read the New Testament without the Deuterocanon, there are things they don't pick up on that I think Catholics do. Uh, one example would be the idea of purgatory, 2 Maccabees 12, 46. 
uh, talks about offering prayers for the dead that they may loose from their sins. Uh, the Protestant, of course, don't have that in their canon. So when they read things like Paul praying for Onesimus, uh, who apparently is dead, it's easy just to gloss over that, like, oh, he's just making a prayer. But it's like they miss mm -hmm. the fact that he's actually praying for somebody who died. Um, there's other things, too. Um, there's a whole development of uh, theology. And I don't know if you've seen the videos on the channel, but a little while back, I did one on, um, or actually there's several of them, about Christology mm -hmm. in the Deuterocan. In fact, I think uh, Wilma Albrecht just put out a video on that. Um, for example, a, a person who's Jewish emailed me. He lives in London. And he said, you know, how, how do you Christians believe in the Trinity? It's just it's so patently pagan. You know, there's mm. nothing like the Trinity in, in the Tanakh, you know, the Old Testament. And I said, that's because you don't accept the books that, you know, you, you only accept the books up to a point. You don't you cancel all this Jewish development that happens up to the time of Christ, because within this period of 400 years, you you have books like Sirach and Wisdom and Baruch, who starts talking about God's wisdom, and God's wisdom becomes personified, becomes an agent, and God's wisdom is God, and yet God's wisdom is kind of distinct from God in some way, you know. And so, it when you read the Deuterocanon, you come really close to John one one, you know. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All that development happened within that period. And so if you cut that out, you miss all this doctrinal development up to the time of Christ. And it seems as if, you know, for Jews and Protestants that hold, hold the Bible, as if the Trinity just kind of pops out of nowhere. You know, like mm -hmm. we didn't know about the Trinity until so Jesus came. Then, you know, now we do. But uh, it's kind of a missing piece in that puzzle. And that's true for the Trinity. It's true for salvation. It's true for communion of the saints. Um, it's all sorts of interesting things that are found in the Deuterocanon. Plus, it's some of the most beautiful books. Like Wisdom is my favorite book. I think it's just so eloquent and so uh, deep, you know. Um, Sirach, too, is loaded with lots of good uh, information, advice. Uh, Tobit and Judith are fun to read. Um, and uh, Baruch, too. Uh, very interesting stuff with Baruch. Um, yeah, it, you know, the Book of Esther, let's do that one. The Protestant Jewish version, which is smaller, doesn't seem to be a religious book at all. There's no prayer. In fact, I don't think even God is mentioned in the Book of Esther, if I remember correctly. <laughs> it's almost like a secular history, which is probably why the, the rabbis debated whether Esther was scripture. Um, but with the Catholic and Orthodox uh, Bibles that have these deuterocanonical sections, you have prayer, you have fasting, you have mentions of God. It's a thoroughly religious book, you know. Uh, so even even in that, it makes a huge difference whether they're in your Bible or not. Excuse me. Awesome. Um, yeah, I, it seems like they're they're missing out on a lot. Um... And 
it, it's just it, it's unfortunate because I, I think there's there's they gain gleam a lot and they're drawing conclusions from an incomplete text that they don't have and I, I feel like that's they're, they're missing out on a lot of wisdom uh, so to speak <laughs> in those books um but yeah, whole book full <laughs> exactly <laughs> so we're coming up on the hour mark and i like to end it off on um what do you do because uh, we, we're going on a lot of the uh, the very uh, apologetic stuff but let's maybe more spiritual what do you do on maybe a daily weekly basis that kind of gets you that you feel is a good practice that gets you closer to the lord oh yeah i'm a nerd so I, like every day i'm squeezing in research and stuff uh, one thing I found really helpful, Adam, and people can get into this trap of, if especially if you're defending the faith, it can become kind of just an intellectual op- exercise that you go through. So the faith is just ideas and thoughts and stuff. It's I find it so important to try to integrate your spiritual reading, you know, the mass, the sacraments, with your study, um, and not make it not compartmentalize it, right? It's got to be part of life in general. And, uh, you know, the whole thing feeds on each other. The more you know about God, the more you love God, the more you love God, the more you want to know about God. And I think you kind of have to have that dynamic, especially for people like us that defend the faith, because you can become just a book nerd and no one wants to talk to you. And your spiritual life will go down the tubes because you're whenever you read the Bible, you're looking for things you can use you know, for or against something, but it's really important to try to to uh, integrate your spiritual life with your study, so that they both can mutually benefit each other. I guess that, that would that, be my big tip. That that's a, a great tip, especially for me, because a lot of times I'll I'll read, uh, or if I'm reading scripture, I'm like, oh, that's such a good point. I need to bring that up, or I need to remember this, or and or I'll. Uh, dive in reading a bunch of books instead of just trying to sit with the word and kind of talk with God and make sure that's a constant communication uh, instead of just making it all about me gaining knowledge, but having that relationship with him. And yep. uh, that, that's a really good tip that I need to take. So I appreciate that. So thanks Gary again for being on the podcast. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to little old me. Oh, no, I'm thrilled. Thank you so much for inviting me on. And thanks for your patience, too, by the way. Of course. Hey, guys, thank you for watching this video. I hope you guys enjoyed this interview. I always enjoyed all the interviews that I do. If you are new to this channel or this podcast, please subscribe to the podcast or the YouTube channel, whichever way you're watching it. If you are on podcast platforms, listen up. Listen, I would like you to subscribe, obviously, and then leave the podcast a five-star review, whether you are on Spotify or whether you are on Apple Podcasts. That helps the podcast grow. And as always, just share this podcast with your friends and family. Also, share this YouTube video if you just want to share the YouTube video as well. If you're here on YouTube, that is the best way we can grow this community as a whole. And go to adambuckingham.locals.com if you want to join the community and also support the podcast. So hopefully we can do bigger and better things and have bigger and better interviews and I can interact with all of you all on a one-to-one basis. So go do that. And until next time, I hope you have a blessed week. Bye.